0: My name is Robert Schreiner and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello, and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you're new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a producer and an engineer. We get to talk with John Saylor. We'll talk to him about his time over at Masterphonics, what it was like working with Sheryl Crow, and we'll take a deep dive into his time working with Megadeth. Now, John, he's been a staple in the Nashville studio scene for years. He spent a great deal of time working with some of the most notable producers in town, and I can't wait to hear his stories and talk with him tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzy.com. Now let's get started. John, sir, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I am fantastic, sir. So happy to have you here. I've been looking forward to this one. Well, why don't we go ahead and jump right in. Can you tell me what it was like in your early years in Nashville?
1: My early years in Nashville, I was very lucky. Like uh, I was at MTSU getting a degree in recording industry management. While in college, um, I was working in the shop there. I did pretty much anything I could do to get in the studios more, to try to get more experience under my belt. And um, a studio came looking for interns and asked, who they would recommend in the shop, like the technicians that worked there, and my name came up. So I got an interview at a pretty big studio, ended up interning there, while in college worked there part-time. Then when I graduated, I got a full-time spot there. So it was like hitting the ground running right out of college to be working someplace full-time in a job that almost doesn't exist as much now. but. My early years, I worked at a place called Master Phonics. It's a really great studio in Music Row. It started out as a mastering house, but they added studios. So when I worked there, they were building like their third production studio. When it opened, it was one of the busiest rooms in town. And so it was a great place to get a lot of experience on making records and also supporting other people making records. You kind of had to come up the ladder back then. like I started out as a tech, working there, doing wiring, repairs, but you also had to know how everything worked in the studio in case there was a problem or a question. And they had a pretty nice staff, very knowledgeable, great place to learn, and where I had already a lot of the basics, like I came out of college knowing how to read a schematic, I knew how the consoles worked, the outboard gear, tape machines. So we wired the entire studio called the tracking room, I worked my way into being an assistant on sessions. Back then there was always an assistant on everything. And that's where you got a chance to work with a variety of of these just storied veteran engineers that really knew their stuff. It was a great education to be in the room with somebody like that coming up. And it was also a place where you got to know Different contacts, and so that paid off later when I left Mastonics and went independent, like started doing my own sessions. Uh, this was the mid to late '90s. Country music was a huge market share, so you know there was a lot of records being made in Nashville. I still still are, but it was a huge part of the of all records sold. So I think like twenty five percent back then. So it was a great place for that, but then that studio also they did lots of other types of genres of music. So we did so many, you know, you'd sometimes have an RB session or you'd have a rock group come in or there were people from out of town would come and work at places like Master Phonics or Emerald.
0: Well, Master Phonics was awesome all around. I mean, I remember I produced a project over in studio six. I did a lot of work out of the tracking room. Yeah. And when we say that they're not in the same building, I mean, these are, separate buildings. It seems as if master would just keep buying things. (laughs) Yeah. 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 The tracking room itself, is that even still functional these days?
1: No, it is unfortunately gone. It was a victim of Nashville's huge boom for high rise buildings. The tracking room, as you know, you know, it was right there off of I-40, right off the interstate. The building was leased at the time we built that studio the owner of the building eventually bought the studio and maintained it for several years. But I guess he got an offer he couldn't refuse. And the whole place was raised to build another skyscraper in downtown Nashville. You know, that was like a, I think it was like an 8,500 square foot building and maybe about 6,500 of it was
0: the studio. Like it was huge. So you were part of that process. What was the story behind that stone room in there?
1: Um, well, the whole studio was a Hidley design, Tom Hidley design. And other rooms he built, like you you probably remember Studio 6, pretty small space, but really great place to track, oh, even at it. that small size. But the thing it did not have was a huge sound. And when you look at other rooms in Nashville, like um, say Oceanway, Oceanway sounds huge. It used to be a church. Right. It's not totally soundproofed, but it's got a great live sound with the tracking room, they wanted to have that kind of, or Glenn, the owner wanted to build a, a place that you could cut strings, but it was also versatile. The Hidley designs are very controlled, so even the big room in the in the tracking room was not as live as say Oceanway. But another thing they did to to make up for that was they built different environments in the isolation rooms. So the stone room, it's an ISO booth, but it was huge. I mean, like it, it was the size of a lot of studios, main room. So they wanted to have a huge natural decay time. So they built that into the room with the materials used also the shape of the room meant there weren't any like modes or hard, hard reflections that would bounce back and cancel out. You could also control the decay time in the room by adding gobos to the yeah. room to deaden it down as much as you needed. So it was it was kind of like the ultimate play zone to <laughs> figure out how you wanted to control the ambience of something because we used it for everything from we tracked drums in there. I'm pretty sure that some of the Megadeth drums were tracked in there on those two albums. <laughs> It was used as a live room during mixes where we would set up speakers and microphones on each end of the room. And it was just a huge natural sounding decay before we had all the plugins we have now.
0: Yeah, we put drums in there. We put guitar amps in there.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. We had a field day. Yeah, with we, that, right? uh, oh, even on string dates, if we had string dates where you'd have like a 40 or 50 piece in the main room, we would often open up that room and put mics in there, like really quiet mics, and record that as an extra room source on the string date to give you more ambience if you needed it in the mix. So really great room. There was pretty much nothing else like it.
0: (laughs) Well, you mentioned a couple things in there I wanted to touch on. The big thing you mentioned there was Megadeth, but before you get into Megadeth for me, what was it like going to school at MTSU?
1: Um, MTSU was pretty great. I started out getting a music degree at ETSU because I'm from East Tennessee. Late in my my years at ETSU, I, did, I changed my mind. I wanted to change majors, and I started looking around for schools where I could do audio because I was doing a lot of that live. And at MTSU, it was they had a brand new building at the time. They had an SSL console, which most places didn't have, and that's what most studios in Nashville had or about half of them had at the time and you got a lot of, of time in the classes as an upperclassman they had lots of recording courses you also had to have you had to learn about other parts of, of the music business you had to learn about mass communication in general I had a I got an electronics minor while I was there so it was a great place to learn and and not that expensive at the time which issue at that time I believe it was $800 a semester and when you were in one of the production classes, you would get 40 hours of time in the studio for $800. Right. You know, like, that's pretty, that's pretty cheap. anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: The reason I even asked you that was because I've had a chance to teach at a lot of the different audio schools and mm-hmm. never over at MTSU, so I just didn't know what that one was like. It's,
1: it was a good program. I, I bet it still is as far as I can see from what I read about it online. So. Yeah.
0: Everybody I know that's gone through the program seems to be pretty solid. But let's go ahead and um, get into Megadeth. Can you tell me what it was like working with Megadeth?
1: Um, that was pretty wild experience. Um, I was working for the studio when they were in, and then I ended up being an assistant on some of those. And then on a later album, I engineered some of the bass tracks uh, on an album where Jeff Balding was producing it. But Megadeth was like a totally different vibe or production schedule than like your typical Nashville record. As you well know, like, you know, on a country record, often you know, you'd cut tracks and you'd maybe do like a song, a session. So you'd have 10, 12 songs in in a week or so. And and then there's overdubs, editing, mixing. It's very organized and structured. And not that Megadeth wasn't. It was just they just took longer to do everything or they try different things or they'd only work on one thing at a time. We would do a country record in the in the core band. You got that whole thing all at once, Um, and you do you do overdubs and stuff to that. But the initial tracking session was most of what you'd hear on a record. Well, Megadeth when they would do things, they would do one guitar at a time, just drums at a, at one time, just bass. Yeah, you know?
0: more of a New Yorker LA style.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, from my limited experience from those other cities, but but also. Uh, kind of crazy to work with these people that are like from a totally different genre than what you're used to and the speed with which dave could play stuff was just crazy Um, i (laughs) would remember uh, there would be like dan huff who was producing it great nashville well worldwide guitar player and dan could literally play anything he could imagine he could he could play it Im- immediately on the guitar, and so they would be coming up with ideas for a solo or this or that, and and Dave would have ideas too, and Dan would play something, and then Dave could play it pretty much right away too, or or come up with something different. But then he would always speed it up, you know. <laughs> it would always just be mind-numbingly fast, you know. And it, uh, he was very kind of type A, like he would he would kind of attack the track. So it was it was kind of interesting to watch that dynamic between Dan being being this one type of guitar player and Dave being this other type of guitar player and also the two personalities working right. together, you know.
0: Did you like working with Dan?
1: Oh yeah, Dan was Dan was wonderful. He's really really great guy, incredible player. Really understood what he was doing, really knew knew how to get the sounds he wanted and pick the right people. Just amazing. You know, that's one of the greatest things about Nashville is the musicians and not just their musical skills as as session players, but in his case, like as a
0: producer, too. Well, you mentioned Jeff Balding in there, too, being Dan's engineer for the for the most part. Yeah. What did you think that that collaboration between the two of them was like?
1: Um, Pretty stellar. I mean, they they really understood each other well. I've heard this story once, and it was not from Jeff. I don't think, but um, I heard that they met originally going to Belmont. Yes. Um, Dan's dad was a, um, was already in the music business at that time, but they're both going to Belmont, and I think they they may have even roomed together. And at the time, I think Jeff was was going to school as a guitar player, and here he meets Dan and suddenly he's an engineer <laughs> i hope he doesn't get mad at that but but like uh I just like i mean yeah could you imagine dan Huff being your your roommate, your roommate. and you play guitar too you know, know. oh <laughs> but they they were very very effective team that was pretty amazing to see that kind of duo working together day in and day out as you're coming up you know as an example of what could be done in the studio yeah.
0: No, I've heard that same story. I've had a chance to talk with, with both of them on occasion. And I, I don't remember hearing the story from them, maybe from Jeff, but I do know that they went to school together and that's where that connection was from. So you're in the studio with Megadeth. You're working with two of the best producer engineers there are, and it's not your typical Nashville session. So how do you, how do you handle going from Nashville to, to that type of rock or metal?
1: Um, well on that, that session, a lot of that direction is already kind of decided before I walk in the building. A lot of that comes from Dan and Jeff picking that up because that was pretty early on when I lived in Nashville and a lot of it is being open and paying attention, you know, like, um, you know the studio extremely well in that case, like where I did, you know, I knew the room very well. I knew pretty much every piece of gear in there. I knew how to make it work, even if somebody was having a problem. And so with that in mind, you just, you're pretty much be prepared to be ready to do whatever's needed on a Nashville session. Yeah. You kind of have a better idea of we're going to cut these tracks and we're going to have this type of setup and, It'll be this kind of schedule where we have a break for lunch or dinner at these times. But on on Megadeth, it was more like, just be ready for whatever. In addition to knowing the room and having having that experience under your belt, they had tons more amplifiers than we would have on a on a nashville session there was just way more choice same with the drums there were so many snares there's all these different choices that are just there ready in case you need them and because they're kind of exploring more or they're trying out things or they're figuring things out or or they may change directions because something appealed to them you know or they thought of something the night before and so you come in and do something totally different than what you thought you were going to do that day so it was a little bit more open-ended like that and not on this set Nashville schedule that right. we often followed so that the session players could meet a schedule, you know, because this was more, it's the band you're recording and they're just there all day.
0: And which did you like better?
1: Um, it's hard to say. I mean, it's really apples and oranges. Like I was very lucky in that I got to do a lot of wide variety of stuff And so that kept it always interesting. You never got into a set pattern that that was over and over again. So the change was nice. But I mean, I will say, uh, one of the very first sessions I ever worked on at the tracking room, we were doing an R&B group and they beforehand just wanted to, you know, they did a lockout rate. That means they had the studio the whole day. Well, they wanted to just keep working all through the night into the next day. And so at the time myself and this other, another technical engineer there, H.G. Hollins, we just took turns on it because they literally worked 48 hours straight. <laughs> and that, I was like, I'm glad we don't do that every day. That's, that's a lot. Because that's, that's, you know, tough. And what was interesting to me was at the end of it, it sounded pretty good. I just assumed we'd all be so tired it wouldn't sound good. But no, it was, it was good. I think they did three songs on that and two of them ended up on the album. So that, I don't know if I want to do that, but I like the variety.
0: Very cool. So when you're working with people like that, I understand you go in and Dan and Jeff might have their own game plan. When you're doing projects on your own, what kind of process do you have?
1: For me, it's a a lot about, it's a lot about, working with the artists to find out what is their skill set? What do they want to to accomplish? What do we have available to make that happen? Where I now live in East Tennessee again, in some ways it's really great because I love working on like acoustic stuff or or um, a lot of like folk music is widespread in, in East Tennessee. So it's really amazing the amount of, great players there are here that are great at that because I love mics and recording things right in front of you and working with artists here. What's different is in Nashville, you've got session players. It's a little more structured here. It's more open-ended. So you've got to figure out what they're capable of, what they want to get done and then try to keep on that, on that, Goal, Right,
0: marry those two paths.
1: Yes, while still making it an environment that's comfortable and they have the feeling, you know, that anything can happen. You don't want them to feel rushed at the same time. You want them to be just enjoying it. But a lot of that comes, for me at least, from just being ready and not letting anything slow you down. Like, I don't ever want to have them waiting around on me as the engineer or as a producer, I always want to be ready for whatever they want to do. So, you know, you probably know this. some of it's, you just have to be really fast on the stuff you know. And that way you can stay ahead of them. And sometimes it's like, I'm not going to do something really complicated. I'm going to get a sound and go with it if that's where they are in that moment. It's, a, it's, a, it's like different for every artist, you know. But I think a lot of it too is like I try to meet with them before we get into my studio. Sometimes that means if they rehearse on their own, checking out one of the rehearsals or check, you know, checking out a performance, seeing what they want to try to create. Sometimes it means getting them to rehearse here. If they're already yeah. going to rehearse anyway, have them come to my studio and, and see what they sound like. Once we put mics on them, and they're thinking we're just here to rehearse, but really, I'm recording everything. Of course, and that kind of takes that takes some of the stigma out of it, it takes the right away. away. You yeah, know? yeah, and I've definitely had experiences like that where you bring people in, and they don't think there's anything to risk because they're just really doing a rehearsal. Then you get something recorded that that they really like how it sounds. And so they're already over that hump of, oh, we're going to go in and record. They didn't even know we were really doing it, and then we've got something they already like. And so then they just want to continue. So that's kind of a nice little trick to get people over the red light.
0: No, I like that. And how do you end up balancing that technology versus creativity portion you're discussing?
1: Um. Well, I will say, like to me, it's it's like the technology can't take over, or it's got to take a backseat to the creativity. You know, I I definitely learned that in Nashville when it was like, if we set up and we're trying to cut a track, and I'm sure you had this too, a lot of times in Nashville the best take was the first take when they didn't quite know the song completely because there's somehow this magic in it so you know i learned that early on just be recording already be ready but that's the same kind of thought process of not letting the technology get in the way of the artistry you know when you when you marry them really the technology part is kind of invisible I think uh, like you want them to be like, wow, that sounds better than I ever thought it could. But you don't want them to sit there and think about how did you do that? Or you don't want them waiting on you to get that sound. Right. You just want to be ahead of them, basically on the tech side.
0: Do you have any examples you could share?
1: Um, I guess like what I would say is if we're working on a song and we get... A couple of takes that are pretty good but they like one part of one take and one part of another take if i can fly one into the other at the edit point right there in front of them and they immediately hear how it sounds that's that's a real game changer for their their confidence in their ability to make a record with you and what can be done the fact that it's not like this waiting game that's pretty nice. Yeah. Um it's the same kind of thing when you're you're trying to dial in a sound. I don't want to pick ahead of time what a, what a player's going to sound like. I want to kind of hear what they sound like and then, and then then mic them up and and try something out. But at the same time, if if they've got a song and it's totally ready and you can kind of tell that they're they're ready to go, I'm not going to try a whole bunch of different things. I'm sure. going to get a sound quickly. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because that's far more important than which mic I used on whatever record. You know, it's more about were they in the moment? Then, yeah,
0: let's use what we got. That happens a lot. You know, people always talk about the debate over which mic to use or which you know, signal yeah. chain to <laughs> go through. All that stuff's great, and it does play a, a part in everything. You'll never even remember what chain you use down the line, let yeah. alone the person listening yeah. to the music. They don't care. They just want to know, does it sound good or not? Does it move me in some way or not?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So when you're working with these bands, can you remember any instance by chance that the first take was the one you used?
1: Oh, um. We did a a record with Ronnie Millsap where he did a bunch of standards, like, you know, My Funny Valentine was one, for example. But there were so many on that where, as we're figuring it out, that's the one, you know? And he was kind of like, he was kind of, he's kind of very specific about things he wants because he can hear really, like, he really hears just every little detail.
0: I remember several times where we've recorded multiple takes and always end up going back to the first one, but back it's hard, first it's one. hard yeah. to pinpoint those yeah. exact moments, but I can even tell you, even yeah. with guitar solos, you know, I was talking to Bob yeah. the other night, we were talking to Bob Bullock, producer, and he worked on the Shania Twain mm-hmm. projects and he was talking about working with Mutt Lang and how they spent hours and like an yeah. entire day yeah. working on a four measure solo and they pieced together parts from two different players oh, yeah. coming with that solo. Meantime, oh, yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about two of the best guitar players in the world, and I'm sure yeah. the very first take from either one of them would have been just as good as what they yeah. came up with.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re- I remember things like that. I remember being him being in the studio and just it being that many takes. But you're right, like, the first take sometimes is it. I know on on um, those Mark Knopfler records that he, we did at the Tracking Room, some of those, like. On the picker stream, it was like the first take. And I mean, we had this huge setup, you know, like two 24-track machines slaved together, an entire new window system of Chuck Ainley's. and 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 you'd cut something and it would be the first take, would be the one they, they'd decide they loved, right. uh, you know, over and over again.
0: That's funny. So Chuck recorded Mark Knopfler over at, in Master Phonics?
1: yeah. At the yeah this was when Emerald owned, owned it and, and um it was before Mark built his own studio in England.
0: Chuck also has Soundstage of his so I mean. Right, he
1: was he was at that point he was at Soundstage a lot but they did the Ragpicker's Dream and the Duets album with Emmylou Harris at the tracking room. And I know we brought one of the Studers over from Soundstage. <laughs> to have two analog machines yeah,
0: bring some of your own and gear let's do it over here yeah
1: yeah and and of course chuck being chuck he had like all these different awesome pieces of incredible gear that people had just was like hey try this out here's something brand new we made you want to see what it sounds like you know and he so he had all these things <laughs> right. for that
0: that we could play with too and he's an awesome guy too i mean he's just amazing so yeah. you've had the opportunity to work with all these great producers and in you know, all of these great studios. I mean, you've actually had a part in the creation of some of these great studios. Let's start with the studios themselves. Do you have any that are a favorite to you?
1: Um, I mean, I really loved, I love Studio 6. That was yeah. probably about my favorite room. I like the mix room a lot for mixing, but... But Studio Six was pretty great all around for all parts of the production process. Just very, very nice tight room, great sounding console, nice outboard gear. You know, all the mics we could choose from.
0: They even made use of the slate wall in there too.
1: Yeah, yeah, we would. Um, I remember. I learned a trick from Ben Fowler where he would put like a B and K mic right up against the wall, pointing at the wall instead of the drummer. And he would get this incredible like reflection off of it. That was a nice mic to blend into the drums. It was like, it mattered more where the mic was than what
0: mic it was. Right. You know? Yeah, of course. And and I don't think a lot of people think about it like that. I think, especially up and coming engineers, they want to try everything. They want to, you know, they read these articles about these great mics and this, you know, this process or that process. A lot of the times the people who have done those things that these engineers are aspiring to, they just chose whatever was next to them at the time. They weren't out there saying, well, this would be the perfect microphone for this particular use. No, no. So, I mean, I remember talking to Eddie Kramer once and I brought him into the school to do a workshop And one of the students said to him, you know, I really try to emulate the way you did drums and we only use three or four microphones. And he's like, well, you Mm -hmm. know, if I had the choice back then to use 12, I would have put 12 on the the drum kit. He says, I was just limited to what I had. I wasn't doing it for a particular reason. And I think that's something that we all need to know is that you're working within your means. It's just whatever gear you have in front of you, that's the best gear at the moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is. And, and it's like, if you just go from the guiding principle of, does it sound good? You know, like I start out with, like, I, I think anybody that's done this for any period of time has an aesthetic in their mind, they have an idea of, of what they like. And it doesn't mean everything's going to sound exactly the same, but it means you, you've got a good idea of what, what you like and what you don't like. So then when you go in and you listen to someone, you pick what you're going to use and where based off of that. And that kind of guides you, but it's the same guiding principle, whether you have a bunch of mics to choose from or hardly any, and you're still going after the best sound you can get with what you've got. It's just a a matter of picking it out. Like, you know, a a lot of times, uh, you've probably done this trick. Like when I'm doing acoustic, I know really well where i like the mics but i still you know because i've already got a cue box sitting there i'll put the mic on input and put on headphones standing there while the guitar player is playing and just listen as i'm moving it around you know just to find that spot i like the best and and like uh electric guitars more often than not i'm i don't do a ton of eq to tape or, or whatever it is now we record
0: right. to. Virtual um, tape.
1: Yeah, like I don't EQ it a lot. I'll EQ the heck out of some things, but electric guitars, a lot of times it's, I go and move the mic, you know, because you can just move it just a little bit on a guitar cabinet, and that's the best EQ. Uh, sure. Uh,
0: also, all the settings on the amp itself. I mean, utilize that stuff.
1: I agree. Those things are like so much more powerful than putting a bunch of EQ into something to make it sound good. I mean, I'll use that when I feel like it's needed, but there's other things I can do first to get that sound.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, now we're talking about technology, and we talk about Studio 6 having that SSL console, which I really liked. I got a chance to record a, mm-hmm. or produce a project there for Maddie McCree. It was really great. We utilized every everything in the room. I mean, we tried every yeah. spot. We tried everything. We had Charlie Judge come in and play piano for us. It was just a great experience. But the technology that's going into these rooms, not only the build of the rooms, but the console and tape to, to digital. What do you find to be the biggest challenge with the change in technology?
1: The biggest thing I see now, it, it's amazing the ability we have to control the sound of stuff now and the tools that we have. It's its ridiculous what we have now. Like I look at recordings now. We You know, when you and I were younger, you couldn't have a home studio that sounded like where we worked at in Nashville. But now you can. But at that same time, sometimes I come across like young guitar players and they'll have um, a a brand new Line 6 rig. And they're using that to get rid of their amp and pedal board. They're just using that for everything. And it has all of this tweakability you know not just from picking different cabinets and and pedals but also eq compression all of that but then if they're new to it they overprocess it so that's kind of the scary thing now is just because you can process something a whole bunch it doesn't always sound good or it might sound tiny at the end of it and then what can i do with it as the engineer at that point you know if it's already like compressed that much or EQ would that much. Yeah. I can't undo that. So sometimes that's the thing. It's like, Oh, I wish, I wish I could have just gotten this a little bit more raw or less processed.
0: When you talk about working with like Dan Huff and Jeff Baldy, I think that's the difference between working with the seasoned producer and engineer versus working with somebody who's out of a home studio, even if they know what they're doing. Those guys like Jeff, when he's recording something, he knows what the limitation should be on the tracking side of it, because he knows what he's going to have to do on the mixing Mm -hmm. side of it. And I think that comes with experience. And that's what the people these days are lacking is just experience it. It'll come in time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's two things about that that come to me right off the bat. One is you might do it differently if you know you're going to mix it or if you know you're not going to mix it, that even changes it some also like you want to leave some room in there to decide later some of it. but yeah you're right. I think another thing that marries to the having an aesthetic in your mind, you know or at least an, a, a rude idea of of what's good and what's not is having done it a lot before like you talk about Jeff or or just anybody that's done this for a long time, you've done so many of these things before you have that experience to draw on that marries to the aesthetic that helps f- you figure out where that track needs to be just when you're cutting it versus if you're mixing it in somebody else is or what style it is, which producer you're working with, yeah. what the artist, how comfortable they are with the sound. It's those kind of the guiding principles, I think.
0: Well, on that note, do you have any techniques that you swear by when you're in the studio recording?
1: I really like making sure the musicians are really comfortable. Like, and that's kind of the guiding principle behind it. You know, my studio, I can set it up to where everybody's isolated or I can set it up to where people are in the room together. But I figure that out pretty quickly from how the, how the musicians or or the artists are comfortable with it. Because if they're not comfortable being in separate rooms, the isolation isn't worth it. You know, I'll pick mics that I can control the bleed with and I, and Bleed is not a terrible thing.
0: No, it adds I, to uh, you know, it. Like, as Bob Bullock would say, it adds to the part. Yeah. yeah,
1: Ed C was the same way. He was like, oh, Bleed's great. <laughs> and so, like, I don't let that stop me. Like, it's more important that they can play a good song, have a good performance. So so that guides me, you know. And then, then I pick things like, it, oh, they're in all the same room. This player has a good pick up on their acoustic, DI is not my first choice for acoustic, but if they're all in the same room and it's going to be a great sounding take because they're so comfortable together, then I'll put like a really nice DI on it and and go with that because it's more about if they sound like they're enjoying themselves, that will be better than whatever mic I choose.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely more important to have the performance than the special microphone or technique in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any technique that you learned from somebody that you can recall?
1: Hmm. I'd have to say, uh, if I worked with, say, Ed C. and he was producing, he would make sure if we're working with an artist that's inexperienced, we try to make sure that they have everything they need to be kind of in the right spot. So I think just being ready to capture that moment is the best thing you can do like without getting in the way of it. It always seemed to me like when we would cut records even to this day when I do a when I do an album with somebody, it's like a picture coming into focus and sometimes it happens really quickly so you want to be able to 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 use even that first take like we talked about you got to be ready
0: no absolutely i know you know i had an opportunity to work with several producers when i was heavily working in nashville but i studied under bob bullock for the most part do you have any particular producer that you studied under
1: i came up working a good bit with ed c I also worked with effrey chippen a good bit and also Ben Fowler was excellent person to work with. I really enjoyed his ability to like see where something could go. Um, Dan, of course, is a great producer. Dan is the man. He's kind of yeah, he's kind of hard to beat. So. so yeah, I was very lucky to have kind of like a wide variety of people I worked with over my years in Nashville.
0: You also had an opportunity to do a project for Cheryl Crow. What was that like?
1: That was pretty cool. Um, uh, that was another one where the Nashville kind of schedule wasn't the same. It was, it was more like experimentation and trying things and different, totally different players, different um, um, setups, and. Another thing that was unique to me about it was a lot of the national stuff, you already have the song. The kernel of it is finished before you go in and cut it. But when she was working on Come On, Come On, they would come in and work on songs and they weren't really sure where they were going to go yet. They would try different things or they would scrap things that I thought sounded great, but it wasn't the direction they wanted to go. So you just had to be able to to go with that i mean it, and it it was a decision-making process a lot that was between like her and trina shoemaker you know figuring out is this what this really needs i know we just did this huge b3 part but it, does it need this on the song let's try something different turn that off you know then it was like writing in the studio which you know wasn't something i was used to as much being a nashville guy
0: what studio was it in
1: that was at the tracking room as well.
0: Was it? Yeah. Wasn't that the, I mean, I always heard it, I don't know for a fact, but wasn't that the world's largest recording studio?
1: I don't know. Like, I know it was pretty huge, but I, I mean, like, it was on the same scale as Oceanway, and at the time, Big Boy at the Kitchen was around the same size, but, but it was pretty big. Yeah. yeah. It was uh, a, a
0: large, large uh, facility.
1: I know it was like one of the most controlled environments. Like the uh, the noise level floor of the studio, when you shut all the doors, like the loudest thing in the room was your own heartbeat or the blood going through your body. You know, so if you got in there and stood in there by yourself, it was a little bit eerie. You freak out with no other sound sources. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then like the control room was accurate down to like fifteen hertz or something like that. It was it was pretty stunning. Sometimes you could listen to like you you might think of this but like when i hear a piano in the room versus a piano recorded even if it's recorded super well there's always that difference to me you know it's it's like you can tell it's coming out of speakers there's yeah. just something about it but but in that room you with the mic'd up right it, it was it was like you almost couldn't tell the difference you know it was pretty stunning to listen to stuff in there
0: no, I mean you're right. I mean the piano itself has a whole different character when it's live than it does when it's recorded. But yeah, especially too. I mean I see so many different microphone techniques and stuff when it comes to to a piano. And oh uh, you know, yeah, I mean people yeah. swear by all different types. But I remember the the one I usually go with the most is something that I learned from Bob. I mean again, great producer. So he had some great ideas. But we're talking about the yeah. the tracking room in Cheryl Crow. How many days did she spend in there?
1: Um, If I had to, I believe
0: it was about two weeks. Two weeks? Yeah. So did she record the entire album during those two weeks?
1: No, I mean, that was kind of like a a fraction of the album. I think we mainly focused on like about four or five songs while they were there. And they spent time recording. Like they already had some of it done before they got there, and they worked on more of it after. But that was before she lived in Nashville, too. So I think they had done a good bit of stuff in L.A. as well and other places. So that was like like some of those records, when you hear about them, you realize, oh, they, they may spend months on this. You know, that's just yeah
0: their process. Not in the country world. No. I know when she moved to Nashville, she bought Carl Tatz's studio. Yeah,
1: yeah. Recording Arts. Yeah. I used to work there. <laughs> yeah, I like that place.
0: Must be nice, right? But yeah,
1: must be nice.
0: so that time, I mean, what was Trina's process like?
1: She was very good at organically getting sounds like and very quick and she she knew what she liked to like she had a few specific pieces of gear she really wanted to make sure she had on hand or that the studio had like there was an ADL compressor she wanted to make sure we had that which we did and not like a, but it's basically like a LA 2A clone you know, but she would get sounds pretty quickly so that the musicians that came in could do what they came there to do. And it was kind of like when, when Cheryl was there, it was kind of like this, um, like word got out. She was in town, she's working on an album. So people would show up. Um, (laughs) and, and, and sometimes they would like, sometimes they would end up playing on something you know or or bringing an instrument that got used by somebody playing a part so that meant being able to change and record a guitar all of a sudden but like as you know that was pretty big studio so we basically had everything set up to where you could switch and do something different very quickly you know there was already a place where you could go and sit down and record acoustic and and get it you know even if we hadn't planned to do it
0: I only laugh because that studio, the live room is so large. You, yeah, yeah. you could literally be recording a performance on one end of it and setting up for something else on the other end of it and <laughs> yeah, not interfere yeah. it in yeah. any way. But, yeah, you know, I mean, when we recorded there, we, I mean, they had all the ISO booths going around the perimeter of the mm-hmm. live room. And we would set them all up just to be prepared for whatever came our way. Like you're saying, yeah. if somebody shows up that you're not expecting, you have to be able to go. I mean, I remember we were, um, I think what studio it was, but we were recording Alison Krauss and singers would just show up and when a singer would show up and she's like, well, let's sing, you know, well, okay. Are we doing this in two different rooms? Are we doing it on the same microphone? I mean, how do you want it to go? And we had to be prepared for whatever went on during that process. Yeah. 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 So no, I, I completely understand the, the need for, for preparation, so is there anything from the the Cheryl Crow sessions that you remember that any any unique moments? Uh, I mean,
1: I like she brought along her guitar player who played in the band with her at the time, and it was a pretty special treat to hear him put down some tracks because you know, you're in this town full of guitar players, and I've you know been count myself very lucky to have heard a lot of them play over the years and he was somebody I, I'd never heard before and it was pretty amazing to watch his part come together. He put down a, a, a solo on one of the songs that ended up on the album and and it, it was just amazing to hear that. Also, if I remember right, I think Matt Chamberlain played drums on some of those songs and I'd never heard him play it before. Although he had gigs in Nashville, it wasn't in my circle so it was it was amazing to hear some of the musicianship that just happened right there in front of you.
0: Oh yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I know we've crossed paths hundreds of times, so we worked with some of the same musicians. Like we talked mm-hmm. about Jeff King, who was on the show. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he yeah. is by, by far one of the best guitar players and just a, a great guy to just be around and just all around fun. Mm-hmm. Andy Hall playing drums. I, I always loved working with Andy just because of his personality, mm-hmm. but yeah, there's just so many people it's just yeah really cool but when you're recording this stuff and you're working with Cheryl what's her personality like
1: well the thing that was kind of unique about that session was she's really like Trina is the co-producer but Cheryl's pretty much designing everything I mean with Trina's input but but a lot of the sessions you and I, you know you and I know there's an engineer a producer the artist there's you know some back and forth between all three of those people to, to different degrees but on this she's pretty much the artist and the producer so she's making a lot of decisions you know and also you know she's got to think about what direction she wants to have how does she sound is she happy what is what does she think of the song but she's doing all of that kind of herself without having a producer to bounce off of. Yes, Trina is part of it. And they did do a lot of that, but it's kind of a different dynamic to see that happen between two people instead of three or four. And that's a lot to have on your shoulders. But I mean, she really knew what she was doing. I mean, she still does. I'm sure she just, because excellent singer, good musician, but she also understands like what it takes to make a good song. Great. And, and, and also what she wants, like what her identity is gonna be. Not everybody has or can wear all of those hats at once. You
0: know, yeah, like you're saying, she did well. If they do have the ability to wear all those hats, it's typically not at once. Yeah. I mean, she is yeah. one so talented was, woman.
1: Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Cause like I had been a fan of hers. I also really like Bill Betrell who produced her first album and I got to work with Bill Patrell once in Memphis. That was pretty pretty incredible. I went down there and worked on a Shelby Lynn thing. And he's very intense and he <laughs> very, very much knows what he wants and and how he wants to do it. So then to see that, you know, her doing that herself and she has equally, you know, her own ideas and direction and drive, you know, and she's doing it herself you know, so it's kind of cool to see both of those two different things at two different times.
0: Well, I think the, we talk about teamwork between Dan and Jeff, I think that's just as much between Cheryl and Trina.
1: Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Like I think Trina gave her input that she needed, you know, but also she also had this skill set where she never had to stop and worry about does this sound good or is this recorded correctly or are, are we having some kind of problem that's going to stop us from catching this track? Like you, you could tell they, they work together. They have that trust. And that's the same thing you see between Dan and Jeff. They trusted each other a lot.
0: Yeah. And so that made that what really they were do. able to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You can't, you can't achieve the stuff they're doing without it.
0: You no. Know, and plus it's, uh, dynamic that it's not only when they're together but they work a lot separately and there's you know especially Mm. dan huff where you know cheryl's working on her own projects where dan huff is working on several projects at one time and yeah Yeah, he can't
1: be everywhere right so
0: he has to be able to trust somebody a lot to be able to make some of these decisions and he does put that trust in jeff and i think that's what makes a difference between your average producer in Nashville versus somebody like Dan who has a, a team, a really good quality team. All yeah. right, sir. Well, we do this thing here we call unsung heroes where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody behind the scenes who doesn't typically get credit. Do you have anybody in your world that you'd like to give a little credit to?
1: Um, I have to say for me, that's more of a personal note. Like I would, I would have to credit like my wife, you know, it's what we do in one way, it's wonderful. In another way, it's very demanding on your life. Um, you, I'm sure you know about this, but it's, <laughs> it's amazing to have somebody in your life that understands how much you love doing what you do and can support that, you know, like it gives you the ability to go out and do it so much more, so much better.
0: Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. John is such a wealth of information and an all-around great guy. So please join me in giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzicom slash episode 31. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at JFranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art... Reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.